How are you guys doing? I can't, I cannot see you yet, but I would love to. So I've, I've got enough light on me. So, hey, I want to introduce you guys to myself a little bit and show you a picture of my family so you get to know me. So this is my family, believe it or not. I have seven children and I have 12 grandchildren, actually 13 because uh, one is not born yet, but we count him already. I have three granddaughters, they're all in one family and about 10 grandsons. And this weekend, you guys are super, super blessed because I have my two youngest sons with me, senior in high school, Malachi, and sophomore in high school, Trey. So treat them well. So they didn't want to let you know that they were in high school because they're still both single and searching. So, <laughs> and their, their, their greatest dream is to marry a salt company girl, and I told them they can't get started early. So no, no flirting with my sons, girls. Uh, they will be quite the catch in years to come, so you'll, you'll have to wait. True love waits, so you'll have to wait for them. Um, no, seriously, I gave them an option. You want to go to next week's high school retreat at Cornerstone Church, or do you want to go to the St. Paul Salt Company student retreat, and that was a no-brainer for them, so they decided to come here. My favorite picture, though, I wanted to show you is this next one. It's my grandkids. No, not that one. Yeah, Wait, yeah, that one, yeah. So those are my grandkids, aren't they? Aren't they great? So none of them named after me. I must have a loser name. So uh, my wife there is uh, so beautiful. We've been married 36 years, and we're going to talk about her a little bit. And I, I love it that all of my kids know, love, and follow Jesus, and most of them are involved in church plants in the SALT Network. And it's just been a joy for me to be a dad of men and women who have chosen to give their life for the sake of the gospel. And as my grandchildren are born, the first prayer that I cry out to God is that God would lead them to himself as early as humanly possible. And that they would surrender all of their life to know, love, and follow him with all that they are. Regardless of what that means. So this week we're going to be talking about the theme of the week. I forgot what it is. It's discovery, uh, what many know and few understand. And we're going to be talking about some very, very common verses that I think most of you are familiar with. And if you're not, that's okay. I love it. If you're not familiar, actually, most of the time, the less familiar you are, the more you're going to be able to learn and the less that you will have to unlearn as we go through these things. So tonight we're going to be talking about the gospel, which literally means good news, and we're going to talk about the best verse maybe in all the Bible, the verse that if we know one verse in the Bible, maybe you know. Anybody want to take a guess at the verse that we're going to be talking about? Wow, okay, we had a few guesses, but those of you who said John 3.16 were correct, okay? So just by a show of hands, just by a show of hands, how many of you have that verse memorized? Okay, good. All right. So we know the verse, or at least those of you who have it memorized and you're familiar with it. I'll quote it for you or read it here. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Now that I've quoted it, how many of you guys have heard that verse before? Okay. Now you guys are college students, so you know the worst thing that you can do is actually lift a sentence out of context or list a verse out of a number of verses because you might completely misunderstand the whole meaning if you do that. 
correct? All right, so who can quote for me John 3, 14, or John 3, 15, or John 3, 17? Well, maybe we're going to learn something tonight. See, this verse comes in the midst of a story of a religious leader in Jesus' day. And after he observed all that Jesus was doing, as a religious man, he saw that Jesus had something that he did not. He saw that Jesus had something that he wanted. He saw that Jesus had something that he wanted that he had not found in religion. See, religion is nothing more than man's pursuit of God, but Christianity is actually God's pursuit of man. And the worst thing in this world that you can discover is religion without God. It's just a whole bunch of rules and regulations. And when I was growing up as a kid, I'm telling you, the worst event of the week was when my parents made me go to church. It was awful. Hated it. And if that's the expression of what God is like, if religion is what God is like, I wanted nothing to do with it. But here this guy was a religious leader, and yet he knew he was empty, so he went to Jesus at night. And as a religious leader, he said to Jesus, he said, Rabbi, and he asked him a question to which Jesus responded to him. He said, Nick, he said, unless a man is born again, he's never going to get to heaven. And Nicodemus said, what, what? I can't crawl back into my mother and be born gross. And Jesus said, Nick, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. When I started doing student ministry at Iowa State in 1985, we had a leadership meeting in my home. And I know that just makes me really old. You should know I'm old anyway. I have a whole bunch of grandkids. And Audrey Deuster, I'll never forget her. I'll never forget her name. She came to the first leadership meeting because she wanted to get involved in Salt Company, even before it was Salt Company. And, and I asked her, I said, I said, Audrey, I said, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. She was so proud to be a Christian. She said, but I'm not one of those born-again types. And I said, huh, interesting. Really? Well, what does that mean? And she said what she thought it meant. And I said, what if I told you that someone who you know, love, and probably respect a lot was the inventor of that phrase? Would it change your mind about that? And I said, what if I told you literally the person who said you must be born again was actually Jesus? Would that change your mind about that? And what if I told you that Jesus actually said to a religious person, unless you're born again, you won't go to heaven, so therefore you're really not a Christian at all? Would that change your mind about that? And she said, really? Did Jesus say that? And I share with her this passage. You know what she said to me? She said, oh, I guess I am one of them born-again types then. Nicodemus didn't get it. And a lot of you tonight, maybe you've heard that verse, been involved in religion, but you know that your relationship with God is no different than, as my dad would say, the relationship that you might have with a goat. You don't know God from a goat. It's not personal. It's not intimate. It's not connected. 
you don't have a real relationship with him. And the gospel is good news. And the good news is that we can have a relationship with the living God. And this empty religious guy didn't get it that night, but later he did get it. And we see that in the gospel narrative. But I want you to see what Jesus said to him in John 3, verses 10. He said, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't get these things? He said, I truly say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe me. How will you believe me if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, talking about himself. And then John three fourteen, And if you have a Bible or an app or something, this is a really, really big verse. Jesus said to this religious man, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, let's pause a little bit and talk about snakes. You guys love them? All right. When I say snake in the Bible, what's the first thing you think about? Okay, Genesis chapter 1. Well, actually, it's not Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 3. One's good stuff, and then two is pretty good, and then three, the snake shows up. It says, has God really said? And the snake represents what? Satan. So they're always bad, right? Well, by the time you get to Exodus chapter 4... Moses raises up in Exodus chapter 4. You're familiar with Moses? And Moses had a staff, and God told Moses, throw down your staff. And what happened to the staff? It turned into a snake. And then God said to Moses, pick that snake up. And Moses said, mm-mm, mm-mm. God said, you pick the snake up. And then he picked up the snake, and what happened? It turned into a rod again. Before, it was known as Moses' rod. After it turned into a snake and he picked it up, what was it known as from then forward? The rod of God. There's a lot of insight there. We're just going to have to push right through it. But then you get to Numbers chapter 21, a story that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. And Jesus is using this story in Numbers chapter 21. He says, just like Moses, the guy who had the rod of God, lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him must have eternal life. Nicodemus would have been familiar with Numbers chapter 21. Are you guys familiar with that? Okay, so... God's people were in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. Moses went and delivered them. Have you seen the movie, right? Okay, so they could never walk through the Red Sea. And then they were grumbling, complaining, we should go back to Egypt. And then God sometimes would open up the earth and swallow some of them. Well, this particular time they were complaining. And so God sent poisonous snakes into their camp and it began to bite them and they began to die. Everybody that was bitten died. And so they were freaking out. I mean, imagine this camp infested by snakes, right? Would you guys be freaking out? And what if everybody that got bitten died? That is what was happening. And so God told Moses, create a bronze serpent, put it on the staff, and put it up in the camp. And anybody who is bitten, if they look to the snake, what's going to happen? They won't die. Now that's 
crazy pills, right? What would you do if you got bitten? Say, where, where, what, do I, what direction do I look? Oh, I'm healed. Now, I like snow, snakes. I, I got another picture for you. I'll tell you a story about this one. This is a, this is a wild rattlesnake, and I caught it this summer. Um, and I've never done that before. I like to catch things with my hands. You can take it down now, but uh, I, was, I was pretty excited, and I was hiking in Wyoming with a friend of mine. We're just hiking on a mountain, and we're off trail, obviously. And all of a sudden, I was hiking in front of him, and he said, what was that? I think I just stepped on a snake. Because we heard the common sound of a rattlesnake. It was going, well, most people, when they hear that sound, and that's not the best rattlesnake sound, but you understand what I'm saying. Most people, when they hear a rattlesnake, what do they do? Run away. See, there's three responses to fear. There is flight, there is freeze, and there's fight. Well, I'm the third, right? So I hear that. I hear that he thinks he just stepped on a snake. So I'm running to the snake trying to get a video of it. And then once I got a video of it, I realized this is not a huge one. It's only about three feet long. So I decided I'm going to catch this snake because I know more about snakes than you do. How many snakes bite Americans every year? Poisonous snakes. Five to 7,000 is the answer. How many people die of snake bites in this country? Poisonous snake bites. Less than five. Okay? So what that means, if you get bit by a snake, your chances are pretty good of survival. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to be one in a thousand. Now, this is going to be a story to tell if he bites me that I really don't want to tell. But I'm going to take that risk. And so I ended up catching that snake. And the guy that I was with was freaking out about it. And I was saying, you got to touch it. You got to touch it. This is a real snake. This is a live snake. And he said, kill it. You know, <laughs> just let it, let it go. Right? Because most people are terrified of snakes, even ones that aren't poisonous. But literally in this story, it's the story of the medical profession. Have you guys ever seen an ambulance go by and noticed what's on the door? What's the emblem of an ambulance? Oh, there's a staff and a snake. And what is this a symbol of? healing and where do they get that from this story where God's people were bitten being bitten by poisonous snakes and they were dying right and left and the source of healing was for them to look to this bronze servant that Moses had erected to the east of the camp and Jesus, when he's talking to this religious guy, he's saying, just like Moses raised up a snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Guys, do you understand the significance of that story? Because Jesus is talking about himself. What is the heart of the gospel? It's the cross. Who is the heart of the gospel? It's Jesus. And what did Jesus do? And what did God do from the very beginning? He gave us symbols and signs to see that he would someday heal us through faith. Imagine that. What you have to do to get saved? Oh, I got bit. Dang, I'm going to die. 
Where's that bronze snake? There, alive. What if you were a long ways away? You just had to look in the direction. What is God trying to teach us about the goodness of the gospel? And what is Jesus saying about what he's about to do? And there's so many illustrations like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The first thing I want to say, write this down if you're taking notes. The gospel is rooted in God's love. Agape, maybe is the only Greek word that we know. Literally, the love of God, the unconditional love of God. God is good news. Let me ask you this question. When you think about God, do you see an angry judge or a loving father? Do you see a judge or a hero? When you think about God, do you think about his love that he's poured out on us on the cross? Or do you think the judgment that's going to come because of your sin? Well, if you see God something other than a loving father and a hero, I want to redirect your heart and mind to think rightly about God. I have a friend, her name is Maddie Funk. She actually lived in Ames and she got her driver's license in the winter. And, uh, you know, in the winter it's cold in Iowa, it's cold in Minnesota as well. And so she was 16, doing what all 16-year-olds do. She's about to have her first crash, right? You guys know what I'm talking about. You, you, you at least had a fender bender when you were 16. If you didn't, God bless you. You're a miracle person, okay? So anyway, so it's, it's all of my, I have one daughter. She can't stop having crashes, and she's in her 30s now. It's, just, it's, like, it's like, stop hitting stuff. And she was, and we're not going to talk about her anymore right now. So, so anyway, she actually, someone, she says, pulled out in front of her. And so in order to avoid hitting that person, she just decided to take it into the ditch and into the creek in the wintertime after it had been snowing and raining a lot. And so the creek had rised, and so her car plunged into the creek. And being a good 16-year-old, she had her seatbelt on. And when you start getting water in your car, guess what it's hard to do? It's hard to open the door, and it's hard to get off your seatbelt. A police officer... Driving by, observed her car careening into the creek, rammed his car into the grass, put it in park, dove into the creek, bashed out the window, cut her seatbelt, and rescued her onto the bank. Great story, isn't it? How do you think she felt about him? Police officer, I better slow down. There's a judge. What am I doing wrong? Right? No, every time she saw him, what did she think? That's my hero. He saved my life. And yes, he had authority, and yes, he had power, but he came to her for good as a hero and rescuer, and God presents himself to us as a lover. John writes, how crazy is it that God has loved us so much that he poured out his love on us that we can be called the children of God. 
Romans 5.8 says this, God displays his love for us or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinning, he died for us. Guys, people were murdering him. My son and I were listening to the brutality of the crucifixion and the horrific beating and, and the crown of thorns and all of the things that Jesus suffered. And when he was hanging on the cross, dying and catching his last breath, what are some of the words that he said? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is our God. Paul said about this God, what can separate from me from the love of God? And the answer is nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Paul said to the Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live now in the life that I now live. I live in the flesh. Oh, I forgot the verse. So look it up. <laughs> It'll come later. I'm that old. We also listened to a podcast about how old people's brains die. So I'm going to take some pills. So... Or just die. That would be good too, right? I'm going to get that verse. Let's see, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. The life I never live in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's in there. It'll come out later. All right, so point number one. The gospel's good news because it's rooted in God's love. The gospel is needed because of my sin. You see that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believes in him would not perish. Why would we perish? Because of your sin. And I need good news because of my sin. Guys, you think God doesn't care a lot about sin. I'm going to try to take this off without ripping this mic out because you guys are putting out the heat. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I live. Christ, life, life now live in the flesh. I live by faith. By faith, but, uh, but it it's, it's talks about God's love right in there too, and it's a, it's a really good verse. You should memorize it. I should too. We'll memorize it together after this session. Okay. Who loved me and gave himself up for me? Yeah, that's it. I don't need pills after all. My brain has come back. I had to take off my jacket so I didn't die from a heat stroke. Okay. All right. So let me ask this question. How much sin would you need to commit before you go to hell for sin? Most Americans actually believe that the reason they go to heaven is because they're good or they're better than they are bad. And they think that God somehow judges on a scale. And if I do more good things than bad things... Then I get to go to heaven. If I do more bad things than good things, then I get I have to go to hell. And what they all believe is that the best way to live or the most fun that life that you can live, if it's this is the number of sins you can commit before you go to hell, then they want to live just right above that line. Right? Because this is the fun life. This is the good life. Hey guys, that is a lie. Well, let me just tell you something. This is how many sins you'd have to commit before you'd go to hell for sin. Are you familiar with the first story in the Bible? Adam and Eve, 
God created them in the garden, male and female in his image. He loved them and created them, put them in the middle of the garden, said, don't eat of the tree of the middle of the garden. As soon as you eat of the tree of the middle of the garden, you will surely what? Die. Let me ask you a question. Did they eat it? Did they die? No, the day. You remember God says the day that you eat it, you'll die. And in Genesis we see there was evening, there was morning, a day. Evening, morning, a day. They ate. Did they die? Well, if they didn't die, our Bible's bad. They did die. They died in the only way that was significant to God. They died relationally to him. They were dead spiritually. Before that time, they were one with him. And immediately when they sinned, what did they do? Rather than run to God when he came into the garden, they hid from God because of their sin and because of their shame. And they realized they were naked and they covered themselves. And what was this awful, gross sin that they committed? That God would remove them from the garden and actually station angelic beasts, literally monsters, to keep them out of the Garden of Eden. What was this horrible sin? They ate fruit. Now you guys have parents. Any of you guys get grounded ever for eating fruit? Thrown out of your house. Desi, ever come back here, babe? I will have your head. No. Right? That's what it was. One act of disobedience. Because that's how God feels about sin. Are you familiar with the commandments in the Bible, the Ten Commandments? Love the Lord your God, the heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. No other gods before me. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't steal. Or don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't lie. All those. And anybody who thinks they haven't violated all of them just is not familiar with the scriptures. Who's the best person that ever lived? Jesus, right, okay. But other than him, you get A for that answer. A, Jesus. Every question, say Jesus, I'll give you points. Maybe Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? You know, some religious even today believe that she should be worshipped and that she actually can save you, but she cannot. But she was certainly an awesome person, right? <laughs> Who's the worst person that ever lived? Take a guess. <laughs> Some of you guys think of different things. I'm just going to go with Adolf Hitler. Can we go with him? Okay. Adolf Hitler. We're going with Adolf Hitler tonight. Okay. All right. So from God's perspective, get this. From God's perspective, what is the difference between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Adolf Hitler when it comes to sin. What's the gap? It is razor thin. It'd be like me up here with Tony 
I'm taller than Tony. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. I'm not tall. I'm taller than Tony. What if I was saying to Tony, Tony, shorty pants, you know how much closer I am to the moon than you? It's almost like I can reach out and touch it. You better get yourself a ladder, man. Me and the moon. I am right there, baby. You would be looking at me like, you have no perspective. I'm telling you, the gap between me and the moon compared to me and Jesus and me and Adolf Hitler, me and Mary, the gap is between every human and God. And he can't stand sin, not one. And he can save from sin even if you're the worst because it is so insignificant to him. Are you familiar with Lot in the Bible? Lot, the nephew of Abraham, who was a pig in my mind, he had virgin daughters that he offered to sodomites so that they would rape them and molest them in the city. And if it hadn't been for the angels, this man would have given his virgin daughters to be molested by a horde of people. And the angels shut that down. And then Lot escaped. He didn't escape with his wife because she turned into a pillar of salt. But then Lot escaped with his two daughters. And you know what they did? They got him drunk because he was a drunk apparently because it's easy to get him drunk. And then they had incestuous sex with him and gave birth to sons. The Moabites were the tribes that came out of that. And by the way, a Moabitess, Ruth, is in the lineage of Jesus. Imagine that. Can you agree with me? Law was a pig. And then you get to the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And you know how he's described there? Righteous Lot. Terrible that out of my Bible. You know why he can be called righteous lot? Because he wasn't being viewed based on his sin. He was being viewed based on his faith. And any of you who think you're going to go to heaven apart from the gospel, which is good news that covers your sin, if you show up with one, you will be condemned. But there's no amount of sin you get the gospel lens of Jesus on top of you because you've been bitten by sin and you believe in faith you will be saved this crap of comparing ourselves to one another and who's better than who man is a joke to the face of God y'all should be humbly repentant that Jesus has saved us from our sins point number two is I need the gospel don't you Point number three is the gospel only applies to me when I make it personal. 
I have to make the good news personal. See what it says there? It says that Jesus died for anyone who believes. And then he emphasizes it. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He's not coming to judge us. He's coming to save us. It says he came to save us. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he's not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. God made a way to reject him is to make your own way and you can't stand before a holy God in sin. Verse 19 says, This is a judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. For anyone who does evil, he hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth, he comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. It's not his good works. It is the works of God. And what is his work? Faith, belief. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes in his book, All you believe in God, good for you. The demons also believe. But in his book writing about faith, he's saying faith has substance. It's not about our works. That's not what he was talking about. What he was saying is faith actually works. You will live according to your belief. You will pursue what you believe will give you life. You will pursue what you will be give, believe gives you happiness. You know the average college student in this country, you know how much time they spend on this device right here? Eight to ten hours a day. What are they pursuing? What are you looking for? What are you being satisfied by? The average American male is a porn addict by the time he's 17. Because he thinks somehow they'll be satisfied in that. The average woman is pursuing a relationship by the time she's 14. Because I think in this human relationship, somehow I'll be satisfied. And look at the brokenness in our world. And even consider the brokenness in the relationship you've had so far. If they're not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, how have they made you feel? The richest people in the world are the most desperate people in the world. They take the most drugs for depression and drink most alcohol. They have the highest rate of suicide. And what do we still pursue? Money. How do you make it personal? You have to believe. What does it mean to believe? You have to recognize that you've got a sin problem. You've been bit. Crazy is that, that if I just look in that direction, I can be healed. But it's in that craziness that you can be healed. And if you realize you have a sin problem, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment and will call you even tonight to believe the gospel that is good news, that Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, lived a life that you couldn't live, died a death that you deserved, but he was resurrected from the grave so that you could have eternal life. And your confidence can be in the cross of Jesus Christ that you put your faith in. And you say, I'm going to stand before God, not because of me, but because of you. What is the work of God? 
to believe. To believe. It's faith. Jesus was talking once about the unpardonable sin. You know what that means. A sin that can't be forgiven. How many of you committed that? And I say, well, I don't know. Maybe you should do a session. <laughs> a sin that can't be forgiven. What would it be? Oh, I know, Pastor. Suicide. No. Murder. No. Know what it is? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Oh, what's that? Pastor, I don't know. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's silly. The Holy Spirit doesn't know what it says. No. No. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? The work of the Holy Spirit is to work in your heart and my heart to convince us the gospel is true. And blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is when you reject the truth of the gospel and you don't believe. Because anybody, this verse says, who refuses to believe is under the judgment of God. And when the light of the gospel comes into your life and you say, "Mm, not for me, then just... You stand before God on your own. But you will have committed the unpardonable sin. John chapter 6 says, This is the work of God to believe in the one who he has sent. And in women, I believe. Thank my whole life on it. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he says, If I confess him before men, he'll confess me before his Father who is in heaven. I have to stand before God on my own. I am doomed. The gospel's good news. I'll never forget when I entrusted my life to Jesus and it became personal to me. The word of God became alive. Everything in this world just doesn't mean as much anymore. Everything I did that was pleasing to God was just so eternally satisfying. And I believe some of you are here tonight and you've not yet believed. Oh, you've maybe been religious like Nicodemus. He was a good religious guy, better than all of us. But he was so empty on the inside. It wasn't personal. Received the forgiveness of God because he probably thought he was too good. You know, some of the hardest people to be saved are the people who do good. They think God owes them salvation. Maybe tonight is your opportunity to step into and believe. What does it take? Someone says, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart, I will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, I've been bitten by sin. I trust Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, I, I just love the opportunity to talk about you with these men and women, future champions of the gospel, men and women who have taken time out of their schedule to come and seek you together. I love what Tony said. We're not here just for fun, but we will have a ton of fun. But we're here primarily to do business with you. 
And tonight, Jesus, I know that there are men and women that are here who don't know you yet. That's okay, Lord. You are patient with them. But this might be the opportunity for them for the first time to hear the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit calling them to yourself. I pray that you would give them the courage to turn from themselves and to look to you. Lord, and there are a lot of us here tonight who have forgotten how good the gospel is. We've allowed the deceitfulness of this world and the pursuit of other things and even the wickedness of our own heart to overtake the reality of the joy of our salvation. The psalmist prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That is my salvation. And I pray this retreat would be that, that we would experience a fresh taste of the gospel. That is so good news. We pray all this in Jesus' name.